making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, June. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Disciples Church. I don't think anybody said that yet this morning. Oh, no, Seth said it. Apologize, Seth. But welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Dave Hahn. Uh, I get the privilege of diving into God's word with you this morning. Uh, I was thinking this morning how goofy it is that as a grade schooler, I played basketball in the gym behind me. I was a lot smaller, a lot cuter then. Um, but still pretty crazy for me to think about. I actually had spent... Most of my years, my childhood years, until I was about 10, or from the time that I was about 10, in the Lake Country area. Um, and as I reflect on my childhood, as I've, as I've thought about it, especially this week, um, I actually feel like I had a pretty great childhood. Um, I had a mom, have a mom and a dad. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, we all really loved each other. We got along. Um, there were no relationship abuses in my life, no tragedies really um, around relationships in my life. For the most part, um, I loved people and I got the sense that people really loved me. So considering all of that, the following confession, as it were, might surprise you. And it's this, for the longest time, I had no intention of getting married and didn't really want kids It just wasn't something that I thought about. You know, everybody else seemed to, be dream, to seem to dream about it and have it as part of the plan of their life, and it just wasn't that way for me. To be honest, it felt a little odd not wanting what seemed to be something of a rite of passage into adulthood, but I would have been lying if I said that that were true of me. Now, I had seen in my own childhood that marriage and family were really good things, uh, so I had no understandable reason not to want marriage and children, but I was just simply more interested in other stuff. And then I met Sheila. So we met in 1997 as co-workers. Uh, we got to be friends and eventually started dating. We watched movies, we'd go out to eat, we'd go to festivals, we'd eat Lucky Charms for dinner, all the normal things <laughs> that you do when you go on dates. And then in late 1998, we started attending church together. We had both grown up knowing about God, but really had discussions around the idea that there had to be something more than what we had personally experienced. And in those next few months at this church, we heard the gospel for what seemed to be the first time. And we believed. We believed in a way that we hadn't believed before, and everything changed. Jesus went from being just this piece of our lives to becoming our lives. He was central. And right around that same time, I found myself thinking differently and going, and you know, being with Sheila is actually better than being alone. And I really liked being alone. I still 
like being alone, but being with her was better. I started thinking, I think I could marry her. And so with all the confidence and the certainty in the world, I asked Sheila to marry me. In case you were curious, she said yes. And I was genuinely excited. And I felt nothing resembling what some of my friends had felt as they were getting married, which was this, oh, dear God, what am I doing? Felt nothing like that. And upon being newly married, uh, we got married in 1999, we quickly got the, so when are you having kids question. Sheila and I did actually have those discussions prior to being married and wanted to make sure that we were cool and on the same page, wanted to be honest with her about where I was and wanted her to be honest with me about where she was. Neither of us necessarily felt a strong pull to have kids, but we weren't necessarily opposed to it either. So that's kind of where we found ourselves. Um, after seven years of being husband and wife, our hearts once again began to change. We started thinking about having a family of our own, and sometime thereafter, Sheila got pregnant, and we were thrilled. Thrilled. And when Seth was finally born, and I saw that weird elongated head, <laughs> I cheered. I cheered. There's video proof of it. I cheered loudly. So, I tell you all that to say that for the last 20 years of my life, the greatest blessings of my life were things that I had not planned on. I have a wife and a son. And even more than that, I have a knowledge and a love for Jesus that I really didn't know was possible. And I would bet that 20-something Dave would be shocked to see where 40-something Dave is today. Wait, you're not touring the world in a rock band? You have a wife and a kid? You're preaching at a church. What happened to you, man? Right? Now, some of what happened to me could be considered growing up, but I think it's bigger than that. The Bible tells us, actually, that it's bigger than that. According to the book of Ephesians, which is what we're in today, the what's and the how's and the when's of my life are all part of God's eternal purpose and plan. Paul addresses this idea with the people of Athens, actually, in Acts chapter 17, and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? that they should seek God. Do you know that where you live and who surrounds you is not an accident? Think of the people and the places and the circumstances in your own life. How many of them did God use to draw you unto himself? To encourage you, to care for you, to pray for you, to love you, to point you to his son. And how many of those things did you orchestrate? 
Here's another way to look at it. How many people and circumstances have been impacted because God chose to use you? We're each part of a story. It's God's story, and it's already been written. Because God is eternal, and because God is everlasting, he does not react to our day-to-day decisions, either good or bad, and then adjust his plan accordingly. His will, his purposes, and his plans were certain before the foundation of the world was laid. Before even one, let there be, was uttered. So last week, Jonathan introduced us to the book of Ephesians, specifically the first eight verses. It was a letter written to the church of Ephesus and its surrounding churches is what we've come to know. Ephesus itself was a major port city of the Roman province of Asia Minor, Asia Minor being the biggest province in the Roman Empire. And as such, it was a commercial and cultural kind of epicenter, very, very pluralistic. And there are many ethnic and religious movements in the city, people from many different cultures and religious backgrounds, many different gods and goddesses and emperors that all had temples built in their honor that they would be worshipped. But a large number of Jews also lived in Ephesus, which means that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was worshipped, which means there was a synagogue. And it's in that synagogue where Paul began to preach. This was during his second missionary journey, is what they call it. I think he had three, and this was on his second one. And then Paul returned again after that first brief visit to spend three years in Ephesus. So in the book of Acts, chapter 18 and 19, if you want to look into it on your own, Luke paints a picture of the city and the people of Ephesus prior to the gospel having been preached. You get a sense as to where that city was. And then you also get a sense of the extraordinary turn of that city and its people having encountered Christ and the gospel that Paul preached. Acts chapter 19, verse 10, lets us know that during the time that Paul spent in Ephesus, quote, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Greeks is this general term for Gentiles, non-Jews. In verse 11, one verse later we read, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. What God did in and through Paul became so widely known and life-changing that Acts chapter 19 says that the people of Ephesus became afraid. They began extolling the name of Jesus confessing their sins and divulging their religious practices and magic arts, burning books used for sorcery and evil practices in the sight of everyone. Do you know that these books that they burned were so valuable that in today's economy, depending on what the author means by silver coins, what they got rid of was worth between $5.5 million and $1.5 billion in today's economy. Ephesus and its surrounding region were completely turned upside down because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All the residents of Asia had heard. Is there even a modern equivalent to what happened in Ephesus, to what God did in Ephesus? But that's the backdrop of this letter. In the first 14 verses of chapter 1, 
Paul lays out this incredible list of attributes ascribed to the Ephesian believers, those who had come from this dark place and had now been saved by the gospel. But that list isn't just for the Ephesian believers, it's for you and me. It's for believers throughout history, throughout the world. According to the first eight verses of chapter one, by the eternal will of God in and through Christ, we are loved by God. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are holy and blameless. We are saints. We are recipients of his lavish grace and peace. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. We have been adopted as his sons and his daughters. We have been redeemed through Jesus' blood, and we have been forgiven all our sins. That, brothers and sisters in Christ, is who you are. No matter what you say about yourself, no matter what others say about you, that is what God says about you. Do you believe it? Because we're not even done. Those are just the first seven verses. We still have seven more to go. So let's look at verses 7 through 10 to begin with. It's one sentence broken up into four verses. Paul had run on sentence issues. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Redemption and forgiveness, two huge words for the believer, two huge words for those who have not yet believed. Redemption, as we discussed last week, is a term related to slavery. In Jesus' day, a person was sold into slavery by somebody else, or they sold themselves into slavery because they had this enormous debt to pay off, and there was no other way to do so. Now, someone else could come along and pay the redemption price to buy that person out of slavery. And according to Romans 6, you and I, every person, either are or were slaves to sin and impurity. And we had no choice but to obey. Beginning in verse 16 of Romans 6, it says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one that you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. And then jumping ahead to verse 22, it says, But now that you have been set free from sin. Isn't that a great phrase? But now. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. We, as followers of Christ, were slaves to sin and dead because of those sins. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, we are slaves of God and alive to him eternally. We have been bought with a price. We have been redeemed, and we have a new master. So where is this forgiveness and redemption found? 
Look again at verse 7. It says that forgiveness and redemption and every other spiritual blessing for the believer is found in Christ through his blood and according to the riches of his grace. Nowhere else but Christ. In him we have redemption and forgiveness. That's a past tense. Already accomplished. We have redemption in Christ through his blood according to the riches of his grace. That is what has been purchased for us. That is what belongs to us in Christ. In the book of Ephesians and most of Paul's letters, we find several uses of the words in Christ, through Christ. In these verses alone, I think we find it 14 times. Usually it's connected to Christ himself, the words in and through, but what do phrases like in Christ and through Christ mean? Well, I once heard, as a young believer, I heard an illustration surrounding this idea that I really found helpful. So imagine that someone, as a gift, deposited this enormous amount of money into a bank account with your name on it. And then they provided you the bank information and the account information. The question would be, if you wanted to access this enormous gift, how and where would you do so? Well, here's the answer. In the bank and through the account that has been set up for you. Why? Well, because you won't find that gift at any other bank. You can't access it via any other account. If you go to BMO Harris Bank and you have a certain account number, you can't go to Chase Bank with any other account number and find the money that's been put there. And so it is with Christ. It is in Jesus and it is through his blood that we find every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we receive spiritual blessings which are higher, better, and more secure than earthly blessings, blessings which have been given according to the lavish riches of his grace. Now we find two more words, powerful words in verse 8. These are two words that describe, uh, which describe what lay underneath the riches of God's grace. They are the words wisdom and insight. So God in his wisdom knew what needed to be done. In his insight, he knew the means by which we would he would accomplish it. Both justice and mercy were needed, both holiness and love. It is in the cross of Christ that we see God's holiness and God's love. It is where we find justice and mercy commingled in one act and in one person. Justice so that God's law would be honored and the penalty for sin would be paid in full. Mercy so that we sinners would not have to pay that price. And that our salvation might be made secure in Christ. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, the cross of Christ was central to God's plan from the very beginning. The mystery of his will and his divine purpose is found in the cross of Christ. The cross was always the plan. 
Continuing in verse 9 of Ephesians 1, we read, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what's the mystery of God's will? What is his plan and his purpose? The unification of all things in heaven and on earth. Everything unified in Christ. No more divisions based on ethnicity, culture, nations, politics, or where we attend church on Sundays. No more segregation of the sacred and the secular. Galatians chapter 3.28 says it this way, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What were once primary identifiers for you and I have become second and tertiary in Christ. It doesn't mean we're not male and female. It doesn't mean that any of the other things aren't true about us. But those identifiers are secondary and they're tertiary compared to our primary identity, which is now found in Christ. The ground was made level at the cross and both Jew and Gentile come to God the same way through faith in Christ. And even now, the heavenly host and mankind, those who have left before us in Christ, are gathered together around his throne in worship, the unification of the heavenly and the earthly things. And one day, we who are in Christ will join them. But today... We are left here marveling at the wonder of this mystery. Reading about it and discussing it, talking about it, living in the good of it. And, incredibly, we're able to share this good news with others. Because according to verse 9, Christ, by his Spirit, has made this mystery known. The Bible says that men and women of faith throughout history, even angels themselves, have longed to understand what we now understand, to see what we now see. Be assured, we did not figure it out. We have no room to boast, nor do we have any room to condemn because others prior to us had missed it. By God's grace, it has been revealed. So the first 14 verses of of Ephesians remind us of three really incredible blessings given to us in Christ. The first two blessings are found in verses 5 and 7. One, we have been adopted into God's family. Verse 5. Verse 7 says we have been redeemed. And then verse 11 reveals the third blessing. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is a promise of sonship to those whom God predestined to be holy, blameless children by faith in his son. The promise of the kingdom of heaven and all it possesses for those that are his own. An inheritance and a promise for the chosen and the predestined children of God. Read Christ followers. The chosen and the predestined are those who know and love Christ. Now listen, none of us were looking for God 
when he found us, right? What did we just sing? Hallelujah. He has found me. We weren't looking for him. Not Abraham, not Moses, not the disciples, not me, not you. In love, not according to merit, he chose us before the foundation of the world. According to the purpose of his will, he predestined us. Predestined, by the way, simply means determined beforehand. I think we've made it a bigger thing than that. So before you or I existed and could do anything good or bad, he set his love on us and determined in that love to make us his. The famous preacher Jonathan Edwards said it this way, we provide nothing for our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So the Bible is filled with stories of God choosing those that no one would have expected. As Jonathan mentioned last week, God often chooses the least likely because it brings him the most glory. He chose an old man and woman incapable of bearing children on their own to build a holy nation for himself. He chose a reluctant man who didn't speak well to be the messenger of God to Pharaoh. He chose Jews, which is the first to believe mentioned in verse 12. And he chose Gentiles, which is the you also mentioned in verse 13. He chose the impatient, the complainers, adulterers, murderers, prostitutes, fishermen, tax collectors, and Pharisees. Salesmen, lawyers, Students, stay-at-home moms, CEOs, and even dudes with tattoos and earrings. On and on it goes. I'm sorry if I left you out of that list, but you get the idea. So why did he choose you and me? Because he loves us. But why does he love us? Because he loves us. It's about as good of an answer as you're going to get from the Bible. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. He loves whom he loves. And he has mercy upon whom he has mercy. So if you know and love Jesus, understand this. You weren't looking for God when he found you, but he was looking for you and had already loved you. And if you're hearing this today and you don't know or love Christ, the fact of the matter is, is that you are here as evidence of the fact that he loves you and is pursuing you. If you are hearing this message on a podcast, it is because he loves you and is pursuing you. Now, here's the closest thing that I can think of to illustrate this point a little bit further. Do you know when Sheila and I came to love Seth. 
when we first came to love him. It was not when he was born, and it wasn't when we were learning that he was on the way. Before Seth was in Sheila's womb, before we knew anything about him or what he looked like, before he had done anything to us or for us, we loved him. And I doubt for the parents among us that that experience is unique to Sheila and I. Listen to Romans chapter 9, verse 8. It says, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Verse 10, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. I think that God allows some of us to be parents and all of us by the fact that we're here to be children, to give us a small and imperfect glimpse of what it means to love like he does, what it means to be loved as he loves us, unconditionally, completely, unable to earn it, incapable of losing it, but simply because that love rested on you beforehand. No matter how good or bad our parents were, or how good or bad we were as kids, or how good or bad we think we are as parents, or how good or bad we think our own kids are, there is something inside us that recognizes and longs for the kind of love that is only found in and through God. For those of us in Christ, by the eternal will of God, we are loved by God. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are holy and blameless. We are saints. We are recipients of his lavish grace and peace. We were chosen before the foundation of the world, adopted as his sons and daughters, redeemed through Jesus' blood, forgiven of all our sins, and we have come to know the mystery of his will. We have heard the word of truth, and we have been predestined according to his purposes, and we have been obtained an inheritance. Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God's Holy Spirit alive in you and me right now and evermore. The guarantee of our inheritance until its consummation. Holy Spirit is the reminder of our new and everlasting identity in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the power of God to be who he has predestined us to be, holy and blameless. Friends, our identity in Christ is sure, and it is not dependent on our ability to be who God says that we are. Our blessings in Christ are not dependent upon our ability to recognize or receive those blessings. Our identity in Christ and the blessings in him are dependent upon Christ. Who he is and what he has done. As adopted children of God in Christ, we will spend each day of our lives becoming who God says we already are. And some days, 
we will take steps forward. And lots of other days, we will take steps back. But our destination and our identity is sure nonetheless. So on November 6, 1999, I went from being a single man to a married man. I became a husband. And I've spent the last 20 years figuring out how to do that and what that means. Being sanctified and matured in the spirit so that I might be who God says I am as a husband. And then October 15th, 2006, I went from being a man with no children to having a son. I became a father. I've spent the last 12 years or so learning what it means to be one through incredible highs and really shameful lows. I'm growing in who God says I am as a father. And most importantly, at some point long ago, before the foundation of the world, God set his love on me in the person of his son. My identity changed from being a sinful, spiritually dead enemy of God to being a forgiven and righteous and holy and blameless son of God. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, lavished with God's grace and peace, branded and sealed with his Holy Spirit to show and assure ownership until I and we acquire possession of the fullness of our inheritance, an inheritance purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is who I am. And if you know and love Jesus, that is who you are. It is our identity as the church. And why has God done all this? Well, we get the answer in verses 6 and 8 and 11 and 12 and the final verse of this section, verse 14. We talked about it at length a few weeks ago. All of this is for and to his glory. That is the why behind everything that we do as believers. Disciples Church, may our lives in Christ, in Christ, bring him praise. It is what we were made for, and it is how we will spend eternity with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our minds cannot grasp how marvelous you are. To know that you chose us before the foundation of the world, to consider that your eyes saw our unformed bodies and that all the days ordained for us were written in your book before one of them came to be. How amazing. What peace comes from knowing that you are good and that you are in control because you are God. Father, for those of us whom you are calling to yourself today, would you give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you? Would you give us faith to believe in your Son as your word and as your spirit reveal him to us? 
for those of us whom you already call sons and daughters, would you remind us of our new identity in Christ? Help us to believe what you say is true of us because of what Jesus has done for us and who he is in us. You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have made us who could, who we could never have become on our own. By your Holy Spirit, we have been sealed. Our assurance that all you have purchased for us by the blood of your son Jesus will be ours in full when you return. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We love you and we praise you and we glorify you.